many years he walked in darkness as he groped along the streets with his hands stretched out for pennies or for just a bite to eat. It's the story of a blind man who met Jesus on his
Amen. Let's take our Bibles today and let's turn to the book of Mark, Mark chapter 11 today. Mark chapter 11. Again, we made our transition from the afternoons to the mornings in our bus ministry and we are blessed to have some of our bus teens in with us and boy, I tell you what, we are glad you're here today. And um, it, what that means for you though, it probably means really good news for you, is that we have to get out of here on time. And so, and like today, it's really good news because I, I'm, I'm driving a bus today, and so I have to literally walk out, uh, really, really walk out fast, okay? Um, and so, as soon as the service is over, you will not see me. I'll be like Casper the Friendly Ghost. I'll be it, gone, okay? I don't know if I'm supposed to say that in church, but, but anyway, <clears throat> but the fact is, is that uh, we're moving. So I want to be done. I mean, and, uh, I mean, I want to be lightning speed, you know, mock speed, you know, so we're going to move today and we'll see where we get. I don't know if I'm going to even get to the whole message. I, I've been dwelling and thinking about this thing for, I don't know, oh, at least a week or two now. And just kind of trying to figure it out. And just yesterday, just yesterday, boom, uh, it kind of hit me, you know, the message hit me, right? But, I mean, I, the text and all the thoughts and some of the, you know, it hit me. But then I got looking at it, and I don't know if I'll get to it. Isn't that terrible? I won't even get to the message. I have to get to the application. <laughs> we'll see what happens, right? We'll see what the Lord does. So you just go ahead and uh, pray in, and silently to yourself and just say, Lord, help that guy. He's in a mess today. <laughs> All right? But we're going to have a good time in the Word of God. Mark chapter 11. Look at verse 15. I want to start with where our text actually lies. And then we're going to go back a little bit. We're going to kind of, kind of create the scene a little bit. We're going to see where the Bible, how we got to that point. Now, look what it says here in chapter 11 and verse 15. And they come to Jerusalem. And Jesus went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple. And overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seat of them that sold doves. And would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. And he, ta and he taught, saying unto them, Is it not written, My house shall not be called, uh, uh, my house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer? But ye have made it a den of thieves. Wow. So what we have here is we have uh, Jesus cleansing the temple. And boy, I'll tell you what, uh, we, we like that passage, you know, especially some of the fellas in here. Yeah. You know, we like it. But we're going to talk a little bit about that, and I want to try to get us where he is there, because I think there's a little more to that than just simply Jesus one day got a burn and said, you know what, I'm sick of it. Let's go crazy. That's not what Jesus did. And so I want you to understand, I want to try to kind of wrap our minds around the concept or the context of the passage a little bit and try to get to where we are and realize what's transpired, what's taken place, and kind of how it all fits together a little bit. So let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll, we'll take a look at that. Father, we come to you. We thank you for this time together. I thank you for the people of God. I thank you for those that are visiting with us as well. Thank you that we are just able to gather here around your word and be encouraged by it. Now bless us and help us, and Lord, may you be glorified in everything that's said and done. Lord, there may be someone here, possibly, that doesn't even know for sure heaven's their home, has never settled their soul salvation. I pray that they would before they leave. But Lord, for the believer today, may our hearts be encouraged, and may we be instructed, and may we be inspired to be better for you. Lord, help us. We need you today. Father, just uh, guide my tongue and help me, Lord, with the time. 
to be wise with it. We'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Now, look back, if you would, to verse 7. And we're going to begin now kind of finding our way to our text. It says there in Mark chapter 11, verse 7 through 10, and they brought the colt to Jesus. He had told them to go find a colt. And he said, if they question you, then just let them know that I need it. And so it says, and they brought the colt to Jesus and cast their garments on him. And he sat upon him and many spread their garments in the way and others cut down branches off the trees and strawed them in the way. And they that went before and they that followed cried saying, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the kingdom of our father David that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Here in this passage here, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. And we see here that the Bible tells us that they spread their garments in the way. They spread these, these as you say, these branches off the trees in the way. And, and they, they placed them on the pathway. And along the way, the people are crying out and they're, they're, they're recognizing Christ and they're fulfilling a, a messianic prophecy and they're saying, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. And they're just pointing and saying, he is Messiah. He is God in flesh at this point. As he makes his way into Jerusalem, we often call it the, uh, the, 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 it's the triumphal entry it's often referred to. The triumphal entry. And the news of this entry, I'm sure, rose up in the ears of the Romans. I got to believe that it did. And I got to believe also that they somewhat smiled smugly about it. I'm sure that they were like, yeah, whatever. A Jewish king. How ridiculous. Matter of fact, how appropriate that he comes riding in on a donkey. On the other hand, there's these, these, the, 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 the Sanhedrin itself. And the Sanhedrin being comprised of the leadership of Israel. And obviously we know that they weren't really fans of Jesus Christ at all. But now here he comes into the city. The people crying Hosanna. Saying we believe that he's Messiah. We believe he's the chosen one. We believe he's the one that God was going to send. And these Sanhedrin were looking for. And expecting a very bold and a very forceful king to subdue Rome. And ultimately elevate Israel. Jesus did not meet the criteria. No, not at all. He didn't meet it, at least from their perspective. And yet, although they had this tremendous misconception, they could not dismiss their concerns because his triumphal entry really mirrored the prophecies that they had heard over and over again as children. In Zechariah 9.9, the Bible says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just. And having salvation, lowly, and riding upon an ass, and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. Jesus literally fulfilling the prophecy of old. And they, I'm sure, knew that prophecy. And seeing it, they were a little concerned. They may not have wanted to believe that he was the Messiah. They may not have wanted to acknowledge that he was indeed God in flesh. But they still saw that, and they thought to themselves, man, this is a real enemy of the state. We have a real problem with this Jesus. And so nonetheless, we have the Romans and the Sanhedrin that I'm sure heard of this entry. And then we move to verse 11. And it says, And Jesus entered into Jerusalem and into the temple, and when he had looked around about of all things, and now the eventide was come, and he went out into Bethany with the twelve. He arrives in Jerusalem here. He's made his way in, the triumphal entry. And, he, and basically, he shows up at the temple. Why would he do that? Remember, he has come to be the Passover lamb. And as such, he needs to present himself to the temple. 
and, and he has to present himself to those so that they can see that he is perfect because he must be a perfect lamb. And so there he presents himself to the temple. And we see him at this point gazing about, looking all around, taking it all in. He sees the priests and he notes the people. He even sees the princes of commerce doing and dealing all of their dealings. And as evening comes, Jesus, the Bible says, went out into Bethany with his disciples. And then we come upon verse 12. It says, and on the morrow, when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry. Now, you know, we're not really told where he spent the night that night. And he made his triumphal entry, heard the cry, Hosanna. He goes to the temple. He looks around him. He sees what's going on. you got to believe he noted the corruption. you got to believe he saw all the, the mess that was taking place there in the temple. But he leaves, and he, he goes toward Bethany. And yet the next morning, he's hungry. Now, I don't know about you, but, boy, if there was ever a hostess that would make sure that every need was met, you would think that Martha would be that host, hostess. I mean, let's face it, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, and Bethany. Jesus makes his way to Bethany with the disciples. I can't believe that she allowed him to go to bed hungry. I can't believe she allowed him to wake up and leave hungry. I, I just can't. I mean, I got to believe that she, of all people, would have said, no, Jesus, I'll take no for an answer. No, no for an answer. You must eat. You have to eat. You know how bad it'll look if you go to town hungry? i got to believe Martha would have an attitude like that. Although she loved the Lord and although she respected him, I just think she's such a hostess that she would have demanded that he had had something to eat. So you know what? I'm not convinced that he necessarily went to bed at all that night. i got to wonder, and I, I just kind of wonder if he didn't just necessarily, if he didn't just spend the night in prayer. I mean, he understood and and he knew exactly what was going to be before him. He understood the difficulty that he would face the next day. Could it be that instead of going back home, instead of laying his head on a pillow, he literally just spent the night in prayer? Maybe even the Mount of Olives. Mark chapter 11, verse 13, then, we see now, here he comes to town. He's, He's headed toward Jerusalem and he's hungry. In verse 13, and seeing a fig tree afar off, having leaves, he came. If happily he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of figs was not yet. Now, the fact that there were leaves on this fig tree was promising to the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you know anything about horticulture, I can't even say it, but you'd realize and you'd remember that, that the fig showed up before the leaves showed up. So when Jesus sees this fig tree and there's leaves all over the fig tree, he has good reason to believe that he's going to come upon some figs. Now, we understand that it was early in the season, so it wouldn't be uh, you know, hard to believe that there were no figs on the tree. As a matter of fact, there might not have been any leaves on all the other fig trees. It was, that was an area that was known for fig trees. But the fact is, is that this fig tree had leaves. And as Jesus approaches this fig tree, I'm sure he's going, I'm going to get me a fig. It's going to be good. I mean, anybody ever have a fig? Newton, come on. I mean, they are awesome And so Jesus is ready for a fig. I don't know about a fig Newton, but he was ready. But we know that he found nothing to eat, did he? And in verse 14, the Bible says, 
And Jesus answered and said unto it, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And his disciples heard it. You know, this was a symbolic act. We know that as he comes back out of town, we understand that, that the disciples recognize that the tree is withered, that the tree is no longer bearing it, is, is, is no longer good for fruit. And, and so the tree itself was destined to, to death, and so to speak. But, but Jesus now is addressing this fig tree. And it, it symbolizes the nation of Israel. See, the Lord had come to the nation just as he now came to the fig tree. The nation was, I mean, very much alive. The nation was thriving. It was carrying on with all its political and social, religious, and even economic activity. I mean, it was bustling with activity. But it was void of spiritual fruit. It had nothing to give Jesus except a cross. That's all that it had for him. And the cursing of the fig tree represented the curse placed upon a Christ-rejecting nation. A nation that would ultimately fall in A.D. 70 as Rome would destroy both Jerusalem and the temple. It was prophetic even. And then we come to our text. And they come to Jerusalem and Jesus went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. And he taught saying unto them, it is written, my house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer. He asked the question, really, I said it as a statement. <laughs> But ye made it a den of thieves. Now Malachi, the book of Malachi, had prophesied that John the Baptist would come. That he would ultimately come. And of course we know that John the Baptist did come. Well, and Herod murdered him. We read, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom ye seek, shall suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. Boy, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, had come suddenly on the scene, if you will. I know that he's probably 33 and a half or 33 years old, but it wouldn't have been but the last three years that he makes his way onto the scene. It would have been rather suddenly. It would have been rather soon. A matter of fact, John the Baptist, the head is taken from him, and Jesus' ministry really ramps up. But the fact is, is that he came suddenly, as the Scripture said. And now we find him at the temple for the last time. The last time, just about a week before he would ultimately give his life for fallen mankind. See, he had visited the temple early on in his ministry in John chapter 2. Sometimes there are those, I guess, that would say, well, we believe that John 2 and Mark chapter 11 and the other incidences in the other uh, synoptic gospels, that those, those actually are, are, are one in the same event. But I don't believe that. I believe that they're two separate events. If as you look at the passage, you can tell by, based on so the way it's described in John 2 versus the other passages, even the fact that in this case he says, you have made it a den of thieves. The way he approaches them, the what he says to them is different than he says in John chapter 2. He went into the temple early on in his ministry and he cleansed the temple. And now we find him back in the temple at the end of his ministry. 
cleansing it. See, this wasn't a matter of Jesus simply losing his temper. He didn't just show up that day and walk in and see what was going on. Remember, he had been there the day before. He had been there that evening. He had observed. He had watched. He had seen it. And he leaves that place. And I believe he spent the night in prayer. I believe that he was preparing himself for a confrontation. And you have to remember that those people, Caiaphas and Annas and others that were there, they were in charge of everything that was going on there. They were making money hand over fist. They themselves, the very ones who would ultimately place him in a position of crucifixion, those were the ones he was going to face that day. Those were the ones he was going to shut down. Those were the ones that he was going to change their lives forever if he had his way. And so Jesus, he didn't lose his temper. No, this was a calculated and a very controlled response to the corruption and the abuse that was being permitted and promoted in the temple. And sometimes we, as men especially, like to point to this passage and say, see, we have a right to lose our temper. See, we have a right to go crazy. Jesus didn't just lose his temper. He didn't go crazy. He didn't throw, have a fit of anger or a fit of temper. That wasn't what was going on here. Very controlled, very calculated. He was God in flesh and he'd come to cleanse the temple, his temple. He himself was clean. So must his temple be clean. So why did he cleanse the temple? I guess that's really the message. Why did he do that? I'm going to give you just a couple of reasons, and then I want to make an application today. First of all, I believe that he cleansed the temple because he observed a calloused worship. A calloused worship. You know, there were those that were getting rich at the expense of others, all in the name of worship. And that's a sad situation. We see it, however, even in churches across the country today. We see it around the world. We see people taking advantage of others in the name of Jesus Christ even. That's a sad place. And in this case, we have these that that, that are there in the temple and they're, they're selling and they're trading and they're doing all of their activity. They're right in the temple. I mean, the respected historian Alfred Edersheim, he explained that both Josephus and the rabbinic writings claimed that Annas, the father-in-law of Caiaphas, was in charge of this temple market. As I mentioned already, Caiaphas and Annas, I mean, here they are in cohorts. They're working together, and they are the ones that are, that are enterprising this whole situation, making money. They're profiting greatly from this bazaar. They're, 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 they're getting rich, if you will, as a result of the people. And, and they were calculated, cold-blooded thieves is all they were. Those the leaders and those they employed either didn't care that they were fleecing the flock or they'd convinced themselves that they were doing the people in the temple a tremendous service in spite of the exorbitant amount of money that they were charging and where they were doing it and how they were accomplishing it. Now, we're going to get into what they were actually doing here in just a moment. But I do believe that it points us to a very callous type of worship. A cold worship. Where anything goes. I mean, it was busy. There was activity. But where was the worship? He observed a callous worship. He observed a convenient worship. See, there were a number of feasts between the Passover and Pentecost that brought thousands and thousands of Jews to Jerusalem. 
and, 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 and they were from everywhere. And I mean, and, and these visitors would likely need sacrificial animals to sacrifice. Now, again, I know some have gone back to Exodus 12, 5 and said, well, there, they were supposed to have their own animals. They should have been bringing their own animals from home. And, and, and I don't know, I, I, maybe they're right about that. But that was a very unique situation there in Egypt as they were preparing to leave. And they were all centrally located and they were all right there and, 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 and they could look at their own flocks and pull out a perfect lamb to sacrifice and ultimately put the blood over the doorposts and lintels. But we have Jews that are coming from all around the world, so to speak, the known world, finding their way to Jerusalem and it does appear that there could have been a reason and a need for these sacrificial animals to be sold and bought. The Jews were also required to pay an annual temple tax. And that tax could not be paid in Gentile currency. It needed to be paid in, in the Jewish currency. So now we needed money changers. People that would take the money from the Gentile world and turn it into, just like if you go to another country and you go to the airport, you go to the, the, the money changer. And you, you get, if you're going to Mexico, you're getting pesos for dollars and so forth. That's exactly what was taking place. The problem again is, is that it appears that these, these concessions were set up. They were put up in the temple itself. And, and, and some believe it was the, the, the court of the Gentiles, but it doesn't really matter. It was in the temple nonetheless. And that was no place to do commerce. That was no place to, 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 to do this kind of business. Not only were they doing this kind of business, but it sounds that they were charging exorbitant amounts to do so. Kind of like the, the publicans who were tax collectors on behalf of the Roman government who would not only charge the tax required of the Roman government, but also increase the tax to line their own pockets. Now this is happening in the temple. And Jesus is observing it and he's looking at it and it's disgusting him. He observed a convenient worship. Although it was necessary for the Possibly, and again, I say possibly it was most likely necessary that these animals were provided, that these money changers were needed. <clears throat> but it got to the place where now it was being done in the temple. And not only that, but what was convenient for the worshiper at one point, they, they began to disregard the need for the worship itself. It was so convenient. Why, why not move it into the temple? I guess I'm not real happy that it's in the temple. But then again, on the other hand, it is very convenient. We don't even have to buy them and take them in. Now they're already there for us. Well, how quickly has the church changed to a convenient setting where everything has to be convenient? Nothing can be difficult. Nothing can be hard. It all has to be made simple. Oh, we need to get as many people in the doors of the house of God as possible at any cost. Make it as convenient as possible. We have churches that are throwing away Sunday night services because it's not convenient. We have churches that have disregarded the Wednesday night. It's not convenient for the people. Oh, they have other plans. They have other interests. They have other things that, that weigh heavier on their lives. They have sports and activities and they have family time. Yeah, whatever. And they're doing all of that stuff. They can't, they don't have time for Sunday nights anymore. We don't have time for Wednesday nights. We don't have time for that. It's not convenient. Nothing's convenient in the world we live in. And we try to make everything convenient. And unfortunately, the church is working just as hard as the world to make things convenient, even at a cost of failing to worship the God that we say we are here to serve. 
I believe Jesus walked in the temple that day and as he observed, he observed a callous worship. He observed a convenient worship. He observed a counterfeit worship. I mean, the temple was buzzing with activity. I mean, you couldn't walk in and think, you'd walk in and go, wow, man, it's happening here, buddy. There is a lot going on here. It's busy. And at first sight, it appeared that God's work was being done, I mean, in overdrive. I mean, they're buying and selling and they're preparing people to worship. Man, this is great. This is awesome. I don't know if you want me to go where my mind just went, but all I know is I see a drum set on stage and I see people dressed just like the world up there going. (laughs) Light shows and everything taking place, activity abounding. It's got to be for God. It has to be. It's called a church. Counterfeit. Counterfeit worship. See, I don't like that. Neither do I. I know you meant it differently than I just said it, but I don't like it either. He rode on a donkey, fulfilling the prophecy of a coming king. He had heard the cries, Hosanna. He looked about Jerusalem in the temple. He leaves to return the next day. He comes across a fig tree that symbolizes a nation, the nation Israel, a nation full of life, but no spiritual fruit. This is what the temple now epitomized. This is what the center of worship had come to. Activity without spirituality. Activity without spirituality. All you knew is just show up and please God. Show up and gain His favor. Show up. Oh, you don't have to be clean. You don't have to be right. You don't have to be holy. You just have to show up and do your duty. And God will be pleased and He'll bless you. Counterfeit worship. Singing the songs and praising the Savior. Counterfeit worship. 2 Timothy 3, 5 says, Having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof from such turn away. A counterfeit worship. A worship that appeared to be right but was all wrong. It was superficial. It didn't possess any spiritual roots. It lacked depth and foundation. There was activity but no spirituality. Dangerous, huh? Dangerous. So let's make an application now. First of all, how's your worship? How is your worship? Is it calloused today? I mean, have you grown calloused and cold toward God? Toward the temple or the house of God? Toward the people of God? Toward the purpose and meaning of it all? I mean, do we arrive here even at the house of God not even remembering why we're really here? I don't know about you, but I really have a problem when people sit out in the foyer instead of coming into the service. Why are you even here? Why are you talking out there with your friends when you should be hearing God speak to you? Somebody says, well, man, you're getting pretty, uh, pretty mean today. No, I'm I'm telling you, it does bother me. People always say, preacher, how do you feel about this? How do you feel about that? Well, I'm telling you how I feel about it. I'm just telling you how I feel. I'm trying to understand why are we here then? I mean, is it possible that we have become calloused? That we've forgotten the very purpose and the reason we come to God's house? 
do you find yourself disinterested or cold and indifferent toward the things of God and even God himself at times? I mean, you know what I mean. I mean, <laughs> worshiping at God's house isn't that easy for you. Why? Because you don't do it at home. It's not something normal anymore because we've gotten so cold toward God. We don't have time for him. We're so busy and there's so much activity in our lives that we've neglected God in our homes. Therefore, when we come to church, we don't even know how to do it. People act like the church is the place where we should worship. The church is just a place that should worship corporately. We're to be doing that every day of our life, everywhere we go. I wonder, have you gotten to the place where what goes on in church isn't as important as just being there? Isn't that something? Can you imagine? I'm doing my duty. I'm there. You've missed the whole point. I, I wonder if maybe the Lord wouldn't walk into Community Baptist then and look over the congregation and see the activity that's taking place and go, this is calloused worship. Well, wouldn't it be sad to think that? Our heart's not really in the song service. Our heart's not really into the preaching. Our heart's not really into the time of fellowship. We're just there. Oh, wouldn't that be sad? A calloused worship. Hey, how's your worship? Is it convenient? I mean, do you only worship when it's convenient? Or are you gladly inconvenienced if it means a meeting with God? I mean, do you only serve when it's convenient? Or do you gladly give up precious time, energy, and effort to serve the true and living God? We are busy today, aren't we? We're so bound by the world at times. The world is too much with us, as my wife would say. And I just want you to understand that that's true in all of our lives. That's not just you. That's me. That's all of us. And it's a constant battle, isn't it, to free ourselves from the, the flesh, to free ourselves from the burden and the weight of the world that rests on our shoulders. We feel so responsible to do this and this and that and everything else that sometimes we neglect the very one and thing that means the most. It's just not convenient. I would go, but it's not convenient. I would, I would get involved, but it's not convenient. I would make, I would do that, but it's just not convenient. I don't know about you, but there's not a job in the world to me that's ever been convenient. School was never convenient. College wasn't convenient. I'm just saying, how's come we're willing to be inconvenienced for anything and everything but Jesus? Maybe God, the Lord Jesus, walked into that temple, although he saw tons of activity there. He looked upon it and he went, wow, this has turned into convenient worship. I wonder how many of them would even come to Jerusalem if they actually had to bring their own sacrifices. I wonder how many of them would even sacrifice if they literally had to go buy it elsewhere than the temple itself. We've made it so convenient. And yet even then we struggle and strive to try to beg and convince people to show. Is it callous? Is your worship convenient? Is your worship counterfeit? I mean, is it a worship that appears to be right but is all wrong? Is it superficial? I mean, you wear the tie, fellas. You got even a suit jacket on. But man, I mean to tell you, if we could take a walk with you through the week, Oh, boy. 
If we could listen to your words and hear what comes out of your mouth, if everybody could, could see what's going on in your life outside of the house of God, what takes place on your social media accounts, what's going on at the workplace or at school or wherever you work. I don't know. I'm just saying, hey, wait a second. Is your worship counterfeit? Or are you genuine? See, if we're not careful, we have no spiritual roots. We lack depth and foundation. We may have activity in our life, but no spirituality. I'm just asking the question because I think it begs to be asked. I mean, that's what Jesus was recognizing. Now, finally, let me, let me end with this thought as an application. I'm going to make a statement, really. Jesus is interested in a clean temple. I mean, we see that in our passage, don't we? Now, the Bible tells us that our body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. Matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, What know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which you have of God, and you're not your own, for you're bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit which are God's. The Bible teaches us that, that he literally, once we receive and accept the Lord Jesus, moves in, takes up residency inside us. We find that our bodies literally become the temple. Now, how clean is the temple this morning then? Oh, I get it. Community Baptist Temple, we need to be careful. You, you just don't let anybody perform on stage. You don't just let anybody sing in the choir. You just don't let anybody teach the kids. You don't just let anybody walk in the door and take a position of leadership. No, no, that's not how it works. Then you can't do that. Whether it's a business, whether it's a school system, whether it's the church, you have to be wise. But hold on a second. What about our temples? Your temple, my temple. Jesus Christ looked over the temple and his, his, his greatest concern was for it being cleansed and being clean. How clean is our temple? Jesus is taking a good look at your temple today. He's taking a good look at mine. I don't know what that does for you, but when I think about that, sometimes I don't always feel as good as I'd like to. That means he's seeing way beyond this right here. I mean, to you, to him, on the outside, obviously, I am a masterpiece. A masterpiece. But he sees beyond this, doesn't he? He's looking in the temple, not just at the exterior, in. He may not just go off immediately. He may not just throw over all the tables and cast out the money changers inside. But remember... It's his temple, and sooner or later, he's going to cleanse it. Romans 8, 9 says, But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. You say, I never feel any conviction. I never feel like anybody inside's telling me I'm dirty. I never feel like I have to change anything in my life. I feel like I'm doing just fine, even though I know there's some things in my life that don't align themselves with Scripture my friend, if Jesus isn't living inside you in the personal Holy Ghost, you are none of his. Listen, I don't care. I said a prayer when I was little. And I said it again when I was a teen. And I said it again as a young person. I'm going to tell you, you don't have any conviction in your life when sin is in, abounding in your life. My friend, I'd start asking myself, did God hear that? And someone says, well, see, there again you go, throwing works into salvation. That's not throwing works in. That's just being a good steward. You better check things out from time to time. Matter of fact, the Bible tells us that we're, we're to, to examine our own 
hearts and our own salvation. You ought to be doing that. I'm just reminding you to examine yourselves. The Bible's clear. Those who are God's, he's then there. And the question then is this. Is Jesus comfortable in you this morning? Is he comfortable? As we close this out, Jesus walks into the temple that day, the night before actually, and the Bible says that he looked on all. He, he gazed about and he looked at everything, every nook and every cranny. He saw the people, the priests. He saw the money changers. He saw all of those involved in the activity taking place. He, he could see every aspect of it and he made sure that he did. May I say that he's able to do the same thing in my life and in yours? And he is. Is he comfortable? I don't believe he was comfortable in the temple the night before. I don't think that he wanted to have to go in and chase the money changers out, flip over the tables. I don't think he wanted to do that. I don't think he took pleasure in it. But he wasn't comfortable. Is he comfortable in your life, in your temple today? Is he comfortable in mine? Or is he saddened by the corruption, the greed, and the abuse that he sees and that he feels in his house? By the way, when the Bible talks about it's his temple, it's his temple. It's not my temple, it's his. And it's interesting that in the passage we read in 1 Corinthians, he says, know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. See, it's his, it's not mine. Which is in you. Earlier in the passage that we read, even in the portion where he, he's casting out, it's, it's his temple. Let me tell you, in this case, he says, you've been bought with a price. Therefore, it's his. It's his temple. How clean is his temple today? It's a good question, isn't it? Now, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I don't think we have a, a number of wonderful people. I, I don't know your life beyond church, many of you. I, I try to keep up on some of you, the ones that are more faithful and consistent here. I have opportunities to get to know you a little bit differently than others. Maybe you're visiting. I don't know where you're at in your life. Listen, I, I, I believe that we all are human and we're all works in progress. I understand that there's not a perfect person in the crowd, but let me tell you something. I also know the expectation of the Heavenly Father and He's looking down on us and the Lord Jesus Christ and they're saying to themselves, is that a clean vessel? Is that a clean temple? Is that someone that's, first of all, in my family? Family? Is that someone that my son has already in, 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 in inserted himself into their life? Have they already trusted and received Christ? And if they have, how clean is that temple? And you know what? If we want God's blessing, I mean real blessing, if we want God's favor in our life, we must ensure not only that we're saved, but also that we give him reason and opportunity to work in and through our lives. Jesus looked over the temple that day. And what he saw didn't please him. And it caused him to go back and cleanse it. Personally, if I was a money changer, if I was one of those that was selling and buying and doing all the things in the temple itself, I think I would have rather changed that. I would have rather cleansed cleaned up myself instead of letting him or forcing him to do it. And this morning, I want to encourage you to cleanse some things if it needs cleansed. I want you to give your pornography up, gentlemen, ladies. 
I want you to shut that phone. I want you to shut that tablet off if you're allowing yourself to wander into areas you shouldn't wander into. If you're speaking to people you shouldn't be speaking to, if you're allowing others to, to give you advice and, and counsels, if you're listening to the advice and, or if you're hearing the, the thoughts of others that do not believe in this book and you're giving it any credence at all, even if you're just exposing yourself to that, my friend, I'm saying cleanse it. Deal with it now. Maybe our tongue, maybe our mind, maybe our activities need cleansed. Remember, it's His temple. May God help us. And if you're lost today, if you've never put your faith and trust in Christ, then I want you to know that you are none of His. But He loves you so much. He died in your place and paid for your sin. You are so unique and so special in Him. He created you and He created you with a purpose and that purpose can't be fulfilled until you receive and accept His person, Jesus Christ. Won't you trust Christ today? And allow God to have His way in your life. And experience Him in your life like never before. Father, we come to you.